if I know what I want, people naturally get weeded out. And game playing people will kind of pretend to be selective. I think a lot of people are game playing without even realizing that they're being game playing. It's not always this very conscious effort type of thing. So if you're not really in touch with what you're doing and what you want, then how can you pick someone who's right for you? Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a clinical psychologist and researcher specializing in the psychology of dating. Here to talk to us today about the research on playing hard to get and the value of authenticity in relationships is Dr. Kirby Golden. So thanks for joining us, Kirby. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so nice to have you. So to start us off, you've done some research on romantic relationships. That's your primary focus and specifically on dating. Yes. So tell us what got you interested in dating as a specialty. So I started seriously researching dating nine years ago during my senior year of college. But the way I got interested in the subject of dating is actually a personal story that starts my freshman year of college. So... I got to school freshman year and I started dating this guy who wanted to keep things casual. Classic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. And I went along with it and more or less pretended that I also wanted to keep things casual and he would get with other people and I pretended to be all right with it but I wasn't even really pretending because I didn't even really try to get in touch with what I wanted and I more saw to like I, I I bought into um messages I guess that I heard from somewhere um probably from him but also from other people that you know in college you don't date seriously that you can't really take college guys seriously and you shouldn't expect anything serious. So I didn't really think anything else of it except kind of going along with it. And it didn't feel good, but I think it became kind of robotic. I probably became more game playing and acted like I didn't really care when I did. And and this went on really until the spring. So by the end of the year, when I went, you know, back home for the summer, I felt just like more insecure. I felt worse about myself and my, my self-esteem took a hit. So I made, I think, a conscious motivation to sort of do just like some soul searching that summer. And I read some self-help stuff. I spent time with close friends who I grew up with and By the end of the summer, I felt like I really healed. And I was a little nervous to go back to school because I didn't want to repeat the same pattern. So I became determined to just have a new headset. And that entailed really being kinder to myself, being more accepting of myself, and really admitting that like I wanted a relationship. And 
I was prepared to not get one. It wasn't like I needed a relationship, but I, I just wanted to admit to myself that this is what I wanted, and I wanted to believe that I deserved it and I can get it. And in, in that way, I think I also became more selective, and my standards were higher. And I just remember thinking, I want somebody who feels like a friend, and I want to feel respected. And I set a condition for myself that I would only have sex with someone if it was communicated that we were only hooking up with each other. And this is not a rule that I would say everyone should follow. I'm not about those, so I want to make that really clear. And at the time, I just knew emotionally that is what I needed. I was not, I didn't have this rule to be more attractive to other people, um, like someone who is hard to get. I just knew that emotionally that was all I could handle. The casual stuff from the year before made me too anxious. It was too preoccupying. It made me feel bad about myself. I'm just like, at this point, that is not what I want. And, and I felt really good about it, and it felt really empowering. And when I got back to school, I don't know how this was communicated or something. I guess it was just the way that I carried myself that people started to take me more seriously. I still had the same great friends I had the year before, but guys took me more seriously. I was asked to dinner, I was asked to date parties, and like that didn't happen the year before. Wow. So by December, I had this awesome boyfriend and we have been together for 11 years and that's my husband. Wow. So Amazing. yeah, no, it felt really powerful and I was really young, um, but it still feels powerful. Have you ever asked him kind of what drew you, what drew him to you and if there was something that he could see around commitment? That's funny. Um, I've rehashed this story with him a, a lot. <laughs> um, he's very big of, on like the law of attraction and stuff like that, and he's like, maybe you attracted this. <laughs> and, um, and what he noticed about me, it's, I was communicating something. It's funny because the first time we hung out, I knew I wasn't even really ready to kiss somebody. Like I just felt like it would sort of crash my system <laughs> like I just wasn't ready to take in that much data I just really for my own emotions needed to take it slow and I and he I feel like he picked up on that and because we, we really hit it off right away it was like amazing to spend time with him and it comes time to say goodbye we kind of looked at each other and I sort of like laughed and he laughed and then we separated and he said when he went home his friend who he lived with was sort of um you know, like, did anything physical happen? And we, when he said no, he kind of teased him, like, you know, oh, sucks for you or something. And then my husband was like, no, you know, I, th I think she wants a relationship or something. Mm. And we talked about that probably years later. But yeah, I was, I was communicating something, even though I didn't realize it. And I think I became determined to sort of rehash like what happened for me. The summer preceding my sophomore year, once I got there, I wanted to really like kind of research like what is that process I went through and how can I use it to help people find love essentially. So by my senior year of 
college, when I started doing this research, I should mention, you know, I had been in this serious relationship for two years. Um, and I was young and I, and I wanted to also stay in the loop with my single friends and know like, you know, what's going on with them and what's this single life like. And so I, you know, nerded out and did a lot of research. And that's really the story. So I've essentially been researching playing hard to get and authenticity. And it does mimic my own story in that I feel like I really went from being sort of a more game playing to a more authentic person romantically. So maybe I'll just get into playing hard to get and what that means so that we're all on the same page because there's kind of a lot of confusion about it. So first, people have been talking about playing hard to get for thousands of years. So Socrates references playing hard to get, the Kama Sutra references playing hard to get, playing hard to get's reference in Romeo and Juliet. It's been around for a while, but so, but playing hard to get was really only empirically defined in 2013 by a group of researchers, one who uh, I collaborated with on a paper, which was a lot of fun. But anyway, they would define it as a mating strategy where people feign disinterest to get others to desire them more. And the feign part is really important, that you are faking something, that you are acting like you are more selective than you really are, and you're acting uninterested when you really are. I, when I was researching this in grad school and talking about it with professors, like they would even get confused. Like one was like, oh, I'm home writing papers all the time, so I don't have time to date, so am I playing hard to get? And I'm like, well, no, you're not playing hard to get. You're too busy to date, so you are hard to get. Like this is when, this is when you are faking it. So there are certain kind of broad categories of playing hard to get that include sounding busy, seeming unavailable, so these are kind of like the, the busy categories. Then there's sort of the hot and cold categories. So that's showing initial interest and waning it and then seeking attention and disregarding it. So that includes like not calling, acting rude when you're actually interested, purposely delaying a date. Like I'm able to go on a date with you tomorrow, but I say I'm only free in two weeks and purposely delaying a text. Like I can answer you right now, I maybe even want to, but I'm gonna wait at least 24 hours. And these are playing hard to get behaviors. So when, when somebody's playing hard to get, um, there's something, the assumption is I'll be able, I'll be more likely to find a mate in this way. If, if I'm right. hard to get, then right. people are gonna desire me more. What is it about being hard to get that's more desirable for people? I think, Right, at the surface, people will do it to get other people, right, just simply to desire them more. And at the surface, it's sort of supply and demand principles, where if I'm a scarce commodity and I seem rare, then you will desire me more. And, it, and it's also in terms of, and again, this is still sort of surface level, testing the commitment of a, a potential partner where if I don't text you for a few hours, are you gonna text me? Because then if you do, then you're probably interested in like an action speak louder than words sort of way. But if we dig deeper, it is so much more interesting and powerful than that. And that is one thing I was really motivated to do because research previously on playing hard to get was really just like, oh, is a hard to get person attractive? And the main study that was referenced for 
years was a study from 1973 and it was kind of a sexist study it was like men who rated women who were hard to get and what they found was it was still very useful but i know just the that men were only rating women and it wasn't the other way around as you know something of the time but what they found was uh that men were most attracted to a, a woman who was easy to get for them but hard to get for everybody else and that's kind of interesting but it's not that helpful for the person who's actually playing hard to get. Like, how do you communicate that? If you're just easy with someone, like, I just thought that they don't know if you're hard to get for everybody else. And I became so interested in really the subjective experience of what it's like for people who play hard to get. Like, I really cared about that, especially because when I was doing it, I just knew it felt terrible. And, and I think it can have a temporary rush this was the very first piece of research that I did actually, was asking people, you know, why you would delay a text message. And what they said was, you know, like the upper hand and power and, and, it, and it was like a short-lived sense of power. And, and I had this the other day, a friend uh, sent me like a screenshot of a conversation where he was texting a woman he was interested in. And he went on, I think, one date with her. It was like one of these very long, like, marathon dates. Like, somebody slept over at somebody's house, and then there was brunch, and it was very magical. And then now he's home, and he's texting her, and, and he's like, you know, this is such an awesome person. And, and he sent me the screenshot because he wanted to brag that he got her to text him twice. And that's like, <laughs> <laughs> and that is a big, like, people really talk about, like, the double text. And, and it was in a way where they were talking about something and then she said something on the topic and then he didn't say anything and then the next day she introduced a new topic so he was playing a little hard oh to yeah get. completely yeah, yeah. like he, i'm yeah. sure he wanted to answer and but this rush of this rush that that you get from this sort of thing lasts i would say minutes to hours so you I'm know. also thinking, too, about when you pull away from someone, it can be really empowering because it creates the anxiety in the other person. Right. And if the other person is anxious and they pursue more, well, then you feel like you have control and you're getting this attention. Right. You're getting this attention and it's it's like a short-term hit of dopamine. And you're obviously not going to do this in, you know, a healthy marriage. Like, you're obviously, like, this isn't, this isn't real passionate love. And so... Do you mm -hmm. remember, the, and I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but it was like a handbook for men on how to sleep with women. I think it was called oh, something like yeah. The Game. Right, right, right. And it became uh -huh. really popular yeah. when I was in college. Yes. And it was essentially just like rules of how to sleep with a woman. And a right. lot of it was sort of playing hard to get, but then sure. also this sort of way around like dismissing women, like giving them underhanded compliments mm -hmm. or putting them down. And there was something about kind of the power around putting a woman down and making her feel small. Right, that, completely. I think they call it negging or something. Negging, like, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. My husband's yes. friends got into this book, maybe. Right, it was like <laughs> so a Bible. I know a ton about it. Right, right, right. Right, and it really fits into right. this. Something with, I think there's something attractive about being playful or kind of teasing or sort of, yeah, th this was actually a gender issue that I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess we'll get into the underlying reasons people play hard to get. I'll keep you waiting for it. <laughs> but um, this is something- You're playing hard to get yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> this feels more relevant. So this is a trend I've noticed with men actually more recently. And it's, I think it stems from the Me Too movement. So it's obviously really important. And it's about men right now really not wanting to appear creepy and really wanting to help women feel safe. And that's obviously so important. But I think what winds up happening is men on dates will emotionally shut down so much that they're not even letting themselves like feel attracted to the woman who's across from them on a date. And I'm talking about a date. I'm not talking about at the workplace. I'm talking about a date that a woman agreed to go to. And I'll talk with women who are like, I was so surprised when he reached out again because on the date, I really didn't feel like he liked me at all. And then I'll talk with men who are really sad about not getting second dates and the rejection sounds like, you were really nice, but I just didn't feel a romantic connection. Mm. And I just have a feeling, and this happened with my friend Sam initially who was telling me what happened with him on it. It was hard for him to get second dates and he's a really nice person and he's kind of like, this category I'll call like one of the good guys who are trying. <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. They identify as feminists and they, you know, believe women deserve equal pay and they're open to feedback when they're bound to mess up and kind of exert, you know, their power, you know, or their privilege. But um, I've seen him around at least one woman who I know is interested in him and I saw just kind of how he shut down and wanted to be very respectful and very, you know, but, which is important, you know, but it's, I think, I think there's just too much of an emotional shutdown going on where it's like men aren't now just letting themselves feel attractive or letting them, you know, selves be playful or, and in kind of like what you were talking about in a way that's, you know, you know, just more fun on a date. Like you're allowed to be flirty and playful on a date. And have desire on a date. And have desire There's on a date. There's something about men right. feeling a lot of shame about their desire mm-hmm. now. And not that they haven't felt that before, but there's something new that, that seems to be coming up around shame. Like it's felt more viscerally and shuts men some men down. Right. And I also, I mean, both the shame, but also the, the mixed messages around both feeling like I want to, I want to make an environment that feels really safe and be really respectful and don't want to come off in any way kind of aggressive, but then also getting these messages. Well, I want a man, I want him to show up like chivalry is dead. I right. need flirtiness. Yes. I want, I want someone who yeah. can, I want somebody to dominate I me. I want to dominate yeah. me. Right. And, right. And I think that can be really confusing. And all of those messages understandably can shut a person down because sure. it feels like it's confusing. There's and a it's lot difficult. of shoulds. And, and right. even within my advice for men right now is even sort of unclear because it's like, you're all, you're allowed to be playful and and you're allowed to be flirty but you know still read the room and still pick up on cues and still you know and uh, it, it gets complicated right, but, right. Um, yeah so swinging back around back to, hard to playing to hard get, to get which is okay yeah i think a complicated and complex issue sure so so okay so digging deeper yeah playing hard to get manifests as a defense mechanism so people play hard to get to avoid feelings of rejection and to avoid appearing too desperate and needy. 
So we found, and this was part of my dissertation, that people will play hard to get when they believe they'll be rejected for showing their true feelings. And this is true of securely attached people even. So that means, you know, people who are generally better in relationships, people who are better with intimacy, people, you know, who are also better with independence. These people, securely attached people in general, are less likely to play hard to get. They're less likely to do it. The two are negatively correlated, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but even with securely attached people, when they believe they'll be rejected for, tr for showing their true feelings, they become significantly, significantly more likely to play hard to get. And the opposite is also true. So when people believe it's safe to be themselves, they play hard to get significantly less. And this is true even with rejection-sensitive people. So rejection sensitivity means you actively perceive that you are being rejected and you expect to be rejected. And these people in general are more likely to play hard to get, just kind of day to day. But when they believe it's safe to be themselves, they play hard to get significantly less, just as much as a secure person would mm -hmm. normally. The fact that securely attached individuals, I mean, I know that it's a negative correlation. They're less likely to play hard to get because they feel more mm -hmm. secure in themselves. They don't access those rejection fears as easily. But still, there are many that do play hard to get. And that kind of, it sounds like that speaks to the fact that this is a real cultural norm. It's a situation-dependent thing. Mm -hmm. There's sort of, it's kind of like playing hard to get as both a, a trait and a state. Is what, is what we called it. So, like, you, yeah, usually, if you just ask them, you know, what do you think of this strategy? They'll be like, no, nah, I really, I don't, I don't buy it. Whereas somebody who's more insecure, more rejection sensitive would be like, oh, yeah, you, you probably should, if you just ask them flat out. But right, but once you put somebody in a situation, like a, situ a situation dependent kind of state, is what we'll call it. Once you put a securely attached person in a situation where they feel like it's really like not okay to show how they really feel, then they'll be more likely to play hard to get. And I actually noticed this with a friend who called me a few years ago. She's, she's really confident. She has a ton of friends. Like at her birthday parties, like 60 people show up. And she has friends from all over the world and who she keeps in touch with. Like she's... She's a great person and she's a confident person. And she was telling me about a guy she was dating. And then I think she sort of snuck in somewhere that he was going to a birthday party and she really stayed home studying for law school. Like she was in law school at the time, but then she lied and told him that she was out with friends too. And it just kind of cued me in that something was going on in this relationship because I had seen her in other relationships before and she didn't really play games like this. So I wasn't surprised when this thing dissolved like within the month. I'm like, something's going on with her and this guy where she's just like not feeling safe to be honest. So that's like an example of how that would be illustrated. Are there any advantages to playing hard to get? Are there any short term gains for people? So one is with who you attract. So what we know is that authentic people are attracted to authentic people. People in general are attracted to a more authentic, straightforward person. But there are certain types of people who are more likely to play hard to get, 
who still find playing hard to get attractive. And these are people who are high in certain traits that we know do poorly in long-term relationships. These are traits like narcissism. So people who are entitled and exploitative and traits like Machiavellianism. So people who are manipulative and cold. And these are essentially like the players in the dating field. These people play hard to get more and these people find playing hard to get more attractive than a more authentic person who is lower in these traits. Mm. So these are good red flags. Yeah, these are good red flags. <laughs> so if you play hard to get, you may attract this type of person. And you can kind of, you know, win a popularity contest with this type of person. So it might be good as a short like a short-term strategy for casual hookups and and people, you know, who are high in traits that generally do better in a short-term relationship. Like we know that narcissists generally have relationships that last like six months. They don't really do well in long-term things. So if you're looking for some fun. If you're looking for some fun. (laughs) If you're looking to play hard to get with someone who's also playing hard to get, then yeah, (laughs) then you can... Then you can play games. There's a little bit more of when it's good or when it can work, but there's a catch to it. And that is when you play hard to get or when you seem hard to get, it can sometimes elicit desire in someone who is already interested in you. But it will make that person want you more but like you less. Mm, so this was a I didn't do this study but I like this study so let's say I'm playing hard to get with some guy named Tom and Tom's already interested in me Tom will want more as somebody to pursue as like a goal to pursue but he'll like me less and that he'll feel less good around me and why do you think it does ignite more desire the playing hard to get like what about that is attractive? Because I, I I hear this a lot from clients. I hear this from friends that even though on a rational level playing hard to get doesn't feel authentic, doesn't feel like the foundation of a good relationship, there's still this draw. There's still this attraction. There's still something that's kind of exciting about it. I really liked the way in the book attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. I think they described that feeling really well. And the way they phrased it was calling it an activated attachment system, where when you feel this kind of sense of loss or you don't really know what's happening, like you go on a great date with somebody and all of a sudden they're not answering your texts and it makes you crazy. It kind of activates more of a sense of loss and craziness that people can come to mistake that feeling for passionate love. Like that is not what passionate love feels like. Mm. It's intense. It's an intense feeling. It's extremely intense. It's quite needy. Yeah. It's like activating. Oh, yeah. It's like it activates attachment needs. Yes. Attachment needs, a sense of loss, Mm. and and people can get hooked on it. So that when something is a bit easier and there's not really games involved, then people who are so used to this style of dating will feel like, oh, this is boring. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it probably activates kind of these attachment losses and need to correct from our past. Like if you've experienced an attachment loss 
um, with a parent or a parent who was unavailable, then trying to find a partner who can activate that, but this time around you can repair it, or this time around you can correct it, that there's something that feels um, healing about it. Sure, sure. And it's also with, with people who have, have trouble probably for the same kind of trauma-based reasons where they didn't really learn how to clearly communicate their feelings in childhood, where it's hard to communicate their needs in adulthood. So this type of game-playing behavior just makes sense. Like, oh yeah, of course that's how I'm gonna get what I want, is I'm gonna pull away and see what the other person will do. Hi, Lovelink listeners. Our group practice, Modern Mind, is located in New York City with offices in Brooklyn and Manhattan, offering in-person and virtual psychotherapy. We provide individual, couples, and group therapy, as well as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in conjunction with a psychiatry prescriber. Therapy is a powerful experience that can transform your life and help you live it to its full potential. We're here to help take you where you want to go. To find out more about our practice, visit www.modernmind.co or email info at modernmind.co to be connected with one of our therapists. So tell us about the uh, long-term, is it the Mm long-term consequences of playing hard to get or just how it plays out in long-term relationships? So these are are people who do play hard to get in long-term relationships and the type of person that is. So people who are high in psychopathy and this is not like, you know, murderers. These are people who, psychopathy meaning it's, it's not clinical, but it's people who are generally uncaring and lacking in empathy. These people are more likely to play hard to get once in a long-term relationship. Then also, people who play hard to get in a long-term relationship are more likely to cheat on their partners. People who play hard to get in a long-term relationship are also more likely to mate poach. So that means taking somebody else's partner, mm. someone else who's in a committed relationship. And people who are playing hard to get in committed relationships are generally also less happy in their relationships and report that their relationships end sooner. I imagine it would be exhausting to be the partner on the receiving end of somebody who's playing hard to get in a long-term relationship. Sure. I imagine. And painful. And so painful. Yeah, Yeah, people, I think, work off of each other. And and it gets really sad when you hear these type of behaviors as a therapist, that, oh, this is like what's happening in this relationship. But I should mention that, you know, playing hard to get when not in a relationship, you know, when it's just a casual context, these people are not more likely to cheat. It's overall more innocent and way more common. And, And there's a ton of gray area with this. Even yesterday I, I met with a woman and, and she was telling me about her relationship and it was unclear to me whether what she was doing was playing hard to get or not. So she has a new boyfriend and he came on pretty strong in the beginning and then it became clear that maybe he has some trouble with emotional availability and she sort of was keeping an eye on this and then they're both college students so they went home for the holidays and she noticed that he wasn't really texting her that much so she decided like you know what i'm just gonna stop texting him and see what he'll do but she was also mindful that he's home for the holidays he's with his family she didn't want to bother him she wanted to give him the space to really like enjoy his family and she said like he didn't reach out for three days but then he reached out 
and everything was great and we picked up where we left off and I sort of sat with it and and he asked her more about why she did what she did and it was kind of both playing hard to get and not like in a way she was testing his commitment to her which is a reason people play hard to get but in a way she was practicing nice boundaries and just giving him space to be with his family so it's not always so clear-cut right. it sounds like she wasn't fully being authentic by uh not by by holding back right like she wanted to be in communication with him right. So right. Rather than right. saying, you know, let's talk in a few days or have a wonderful time with your family, there's this test so you can both practice good boundaries and be resentful at the same time. Right. Yeah. No, she, yeah. We, what we decided was, you know, she's going to, she's essentially going to see how it goes. You know, she's saying, you know, I could see really falling for this person, but only if he becomes more emotionally forthcoming. Like at this rate, I'm going to need more mm. so really wanted to focus on you know her standards and what she needed and that's generally right the ad advice i would give to people when they want to confront someone who's being game playing or who they think is being game playing is to just as clearly as you can say what you need and say what you want from someone nobody likes being accused of something it's not going to probably go well if you just tell someone they're being game playing so yeah, that would have been the more authentic way to go if she just said like, hey, over break, it's important to me that we keep in touch or something like that. That would have been the more authentic way to do it. Or maybe that I just need some texts. I understand you don't have time to call. Yeah, it, right. Right, trying to respect yeah. what he needed to. Right, can I kind yeah. of ask him like, well, what works for you? And can we right. coordinate something? Yeah. yeah. Do you see patterns around gender and playing hard to get? Like I'm thinking of so many fe young female clients that I have that date are dating and find connections with men that they really like who don't seem to be that interested in commitment. Or maybe they're playing hard to get, maybe they're not interested in a relationship, and it's oftentimes the women that have to respond accordingly. So they have to play hard to get because they're put in a situation where they're trying not to seem eager or they're trying to respond similarly to their male partners. And I'm wondering if, if there's, um, yeah, if there's like, it's, it's more common in young men, specifically young young people, that men are, are kind of pulling away or having difficulty with commitment and kind of initiating some of one, this, these strategies. One consistent research finding is that women are more likely to play hard to get than men. And... That's surprising. They're more likely to play. Maybe they're more likely to... Right, the play part. What you're describing might be men who are a little bit afraid of commitment. Women are more likely to pretend right. to be uninterested. And we're not exactly sure why in terms of the research. The best answer I've come up with is it seems like something within socialization because, I mean, evolutionary psychologists have looked into this and they weren't able to find anything really embedded in, I don't know, women's DNA. It, it seems kind of like a last ditch effort to gain some sense of power whether women feel sexually repressed relationally rep repressed in some way it's like oh if I pretend to be uninterested then I have something to gain maybe it's like a fleeting 
rush or sense of power. Because it feel these non-committal men hold a lot of power. Yeah, I think it feels like they do. But this is something I'll tell women who I work with is that there are men who want relationships and and it's and it will blow their minds just to hear me say i mean a lot of times they don't believe it and i'm like come on like at least 50 percent of men want relationships and then it's like we'll try to negotiate a percentage that feels right because then Mm. there'll there'll be this like paranoia that like no men want relationships and it can help to just think of even a template of whether your friend has a really loving boyfriend or maybe it's your parents or maybe it's a relative or just to be like, okay, this is a man who is happy in his relationship. And another like statistic I'll give people is that the, and I'll give this statistic actually to men who are a little bit afraid of commitment and also for women who believe that like men are destined to not be committed. And it, it's like an upsetting statistic, but that it's the the highest candidates for suicide are never married men. So clearly, I mean, men benefit from being in a relationship. I also I have a couple of men in, um, that I've seen in my practice where they are non-committal and more casual. They would like to be in a relationship, but they don't actually feel like they even know what that means. They don't. It's more of an inadequacy fear than a not wanting to be in a relationship. It's like, I don't know how to do this. I'm afraid I can't meet expectations. Like, you know, am I making the right decision being with this particular person? Um, Which is a little bit different than I don't want a relationship. It's I'm afraid I'm not going to be. Uh, meet the expectations of a relationship. And even the guys that are saying, I don't want a relationship, that also feels very protective. Mm, mm-hmm. That intimacy is scary yeah. or putting yourself out there is too vulnerable. Sure. Right. This is actually a big trend I've noticed with women now. Yeah. Um, where, and I think this also, you know, arises out of a, a feminist movement. So it's kind of it's kind of nuanced, but it's ba- I call it like this chill girl mentality. And I hear this a lot from from women where they'll say I'm trying to be that chill girl or like men like a chill girl so I want to be that chill girl. And I'll ask, "Well, what does it mean to be a chill girl?" And in in ways it's a nice thing. I it's someone who can hang out with someone's friends and do a variety of, a variety of activities and you know doesn't always need a fancy dinner and is happy splitting the bill and can be one of the guys and that has a nice feeling of equality to it. But the way that being a chill girl can become problematic is when trying to act like one of the guys is trying to act like this stereotypical bro or like hyper-masculine guy who has no feelings who's like, oh, I don't really need to be committed. Like if commitment happens, great. But if not, like I'm chill about it. And like women will feel like this is how they need to be. So they have to hide parts of themselves. Yeah, in order to attract someone. And I see this backfire like terribly 
Because we know that if we suppress our feelings, they come back even stronger. So this chill girl mentality is what leads women to drunk dial their crush at 3 a.m. and then wake up feeling like horrified. Mm. The pressure to be a chill girl also really seems to combat the reputation or the stigma of the crazy girl yes. or the needy girl. No one wants to be the crazy girl. No one wants to be the overly attached girl. There was like this meme of the overly attached girlfriend. Nobody wants to be that. And although there's no memes and there's no stereotypes around the overly needy boyfriend, or we rarely hear that. I once heard like the overly attached like high school boyfriend where it's like this is his first love. So he's like obsessed with her or something. Right, or it's right. like first time he's had sex. So he's like, I'll do anything for this person. Mm, yeah. And it's like... But, that but even then, there's something in, sweet about yeah, that, too. Yeah, there's something sweet. It, like, stays in childhood. Yeah. But, but <laughs> these will be, like, you know, women in their 30s who are talking about being a, a chill girl. And, and there's really nothing chill about becoming infatuated with someone. In fact, that's the best feeling when you're falling in love with somebody and you lean into that intensity and feeling alive. Um it's a horrible feeling to have to block that out. It is so intense. I think there there's some kind of timeless themes with dating. And and that's one of them is that the process of becoming infatuated makes everybody feel like crazy. Like sane people start to think totally irrationally. And there'll be this fantasy to kind of get rid of almost like these magical feelings. And it's so sad, you know, but really if we could fully manipulate someone into falling in love with us, like we wouldn't want that person anymore because nobody wants to be with a robot. And this is kind of this timeless theme of balancing these magical, intense, euphoric feelings with this desire to like make it very controlled and almost mm -hmm. as methodical as you can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how does sex play into this? Like sex as a way to kind of play hard to get. I thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I want to tell you a quote that I hate. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's why, uh, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? <laughs> Have you heard that one? It's terrible. No. terrible. Isn't that terrible? It's oh. like, I don't know who, I heard this. Oh, I don't know. From yeah, a, I've heard this. Awful. I've heard this more than once, and it's sort of for a friend who was kind of probably criticizing someone else who they thought had sex, quote unquote, too soon or something. Mm. And it, and it's terrible. It's like first of all, like I'm not a cow. I'm a woman. Like if you call yourself a cow, you've already lost. Like it's yeah. So at the same time, I work with women who have had casual sex and feel really bad after. And I just want to push this message, which is please like, do not think about what is attractive to somebody. Don't think about this person who's trying to buy a cow. Just think about your emotional needs and have sex when you are emotionally ready. And you can think like, well, how will I feel after I have sex with this person? Or, or something to make it, you know, an active choice and not a passive choice. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm bashing casual sex because there are good reasons to have casual sex. Meaning in research, if people have casual sex for certain reasons, they report feeling good afterwards. And these reasons are really for the pure enjoyment of sex itself. So if you have casual sex, simply to enjoy sex, if you want physical pleasure, 
If you want to explore, experiment, try something new, indulge in pure physical attraction, these are good reasons to have casual sex, meaning that people who have sex for these reasons report feeling good afterwards. But there are not great reasons to have casual sex, one being if you hope monogamy will follow. Mm. If you have casual sex hoping that it will turn into a relationship, people generally report not feeling great about it. Why not? And it's like a false hopes kind of thing. And then they wind up feeling disappointed. And, and, I'll, and this one is reported more for women. Women are more likely to do this one. And there's one that men are actually more likely to do where they report feeling bad after too. And that's having sex with the hope that it will kind of increase your self-esteem. I'll hear a lot about like, oh, wanting to have sex for validation. Like, I just want to feel like I'm an attractive guy who women want to have sex with. And having sex won't give you self-esteem. And having sex won't pick you up out of a depression. And, you know, there's always going to be reasons to kind of bash yourself still. I worked with a man who he'd get someone to have sex with him, but he's like, you know, she wasn't that hot. And it gets really terribly objectifying. Like, well, mm. she was a six and I can never get any eights or something. And it's right. And so one myth, though, is that kind of men always feel great after casual sex. And research shows that for both men and women, when they have casual sex for the wrong reasons, symptoms of depression can go up for both of them. Mm. And also really more so anxiety for men. That's what research shows. I've certainly seen women become anxious after casual sex too. Um, I think this finding is really important because I think this expectation that men always feel fantastic after casual sex puts a lot of pressure really on both men and women. Like for, for men, if they ever feel kind of bad after, then they feel extra ashamed about it. Like, oh, I must be the only one who's ever felt this way. And then for women, if they feel bad after having casual sex and this assumption that the guy's doing great and like high-fiving his friends or something, it makes her feel even worse. Like, oh, I'm, again, the only one feeling badly. So there's an incredible vulnerability after casual sex, especially if you come into it with these expectations. For sure. Yeah. And I also think about how when people don't know each other that well and have sex, you know, there's, you don't know what feels good to the other person. It's, you might be fumbling in that process. Um, And it's usually not great sex. Sure. When yeah. it's casual. No, it's usually it's usually disappointing. Yeah. Um, not every any, time, though. You know, but and are there anything in the studies that show that partners are more or less likely to continue dating after casual sex? Research shows that it is not so common for something casual to evolve into something serious. Mm. For casual sex to lead to monogamy, it's not that common. Hmm. Possible it's becoming more common, but last they did the study, I don't know, I think it was around 2013, 2015 or so, that, those were the results. I'll tell clients, like when, when you're having, really, really every date you go on with somebody, you're collecting data, you're collecting a lot of data. How do, how do I feel about this person? How does this person make me feel? And then you kind of go home and like analyze your data in a way. And, and when you have sex with someone, it is like, a lot of data <laughs> and it's data overload <laughs> data overload and that you know it's like right this system crashing thing where it's if, if you want to take a step by st- 
step approach to dating and check in with yourself every step kind of like well how am I feeling then that can just be like a lot to manage and when I think about kind of great sex and the role of safety in great sex right you the more you get to know a person the more safe you feel and so when you're having sex and safety isn't established it can be really dysregulating afterwards for sure yeah for sure and it's just it's kind of a shame that people don't think about this part more and and what's more talked about is kind of artificially delaying sex so that you seem more attractive and then you kind of forget what you want while you do that and you don't really take the time to check in with yourself when you're always trying to imagine what somebody else is finding attractive right right so if the goal is to be more vulnerable in dating and moving away from playing hard to get, how, how can people be more vulnerable when they date without feeling too exposed? Because there's something that also feels very safe about playing hard to get. You kind of keep yourself, you can keep yourself a little hidden. Um, the other person doesn't know too much. They certainly don't know how you're feeling. You're kind of, so I'm, I'm curious um, how maybe how you help people with that or just general advice for people who want to date in a more authentic way without feeling too exposed. Right. Of course. No, I have a lot to say. I have a lot to say about that. Is that okay if I first backtrack to really talk about authenticity and what that even means? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So authenticity really as a character trait is defined as the extent to which your inner experiencing, so that's your thoughts, your feelings, your values reflects your outer behavior and results in a feeling that you are aligned with your true genuine self. And it feels really good. I want to tell you a quick story where I was presenting on authenticity in grad school. And at the end of my presentation, my friend in my class raised her hand and she was just like, wait, so what, I'm supposed to just share all my insecurities on the first date? Like, how's that going to (laughs) go? And my, my presentation was done. I didn't have time to answer her question. I had to sit down. The next person had to go. And the question really stuck with me because it was a very good question. And I wasn't exactly sure at the time how I would answer it, so I did more research. So here is what I found. So people who are authentic, who are in touch with what they're thinking and feeling and what their values are and act in, you know, for the most part in alignment with all of that, are also more emotionally intelligent. And it, and it follows because that kind of is emotional intelligence to be in touch with what you're feeling. They're also better at understanding what other people are feeling. People who are authentic are better at emotional regulation. So they're better with boundaries and they're actually less likely to emotionally unload on someone who isn't prepared to deal with it. Which makes sense because you know you want to feel safe when you open up to someone. Like you don't really want to share your childhood trauma on a first date with someone who you don't know because it's not so safe to not know what the person will do with it. And Mm. and I thought that was really important, especially because sometimes people even take it the opposite way, where they'll say something you know, mean to someone, but they're like, well, I was just being authentic. I was saying what I, you know, what was on my mind, but authentic people are mindful of what other people are feeling. And I think that's really important. And authenticity is also correlated with higher self-esteem, secure attachment, more relationship satisfaction. People who are authentic are better with commitment 
And they are also less likely to be narcissistic and have Machiavellian type of cold calculating traits. So we asked people in a study, well, if you are trying to be yourself, or if you are being yourself um, with someone who you could see dating seriously, like what will you do? And there was a common theme of just being available. So a willingness to spend time with someone, be honest, call the person, text them, and go on dates. And really like that's it just kind of straightforward stuff and I, th I think it's also important to mention that authentic people you know well this is based from my clinical experience they're they're more selective it's it's not about you know i want a relationship so i'm going to be in a relationship with anyone it's like we you know if I, if i if i know what i want people naturally get weeded out mm. and game playing people will kind of pretend to be selective when probably you know some people i think a lot of people are game playing without even realizing that they're being game playing it's not always this very conscious effort type of thing so if you're not really in touch with what you're doing and what you want then how can you pick someone who's right for you. And I think about the practice of game playing is also the practice of overwriting your feelings. Mm -hmm. And if you're constantly convincing yourself out of your feelings, it's hard to even know what you're feeling in the first place. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I would say first in terms of advice is, you know, communicate your needs as best you can. And that includes, you know, when you want monogamy in any form, because some people will say, you know, I'm not ready to like marry this person. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe you only want to be hooking up with this person or maybe, you know, you just only want to date this person. And like, and that's okay to say. And again, this message of like, oh, is this too soon will come up. I hear this a lot. Like, oh, is it too soon that I have these feelings? Is it too soon that I only want to date this person? Like my friend said it's too soon. So is it too soon? And it's like, well, really, it's never too soon. I mean, everybody's afraid of being this like, crazy stalker or something you know it's it's a shame that people are so afraid of being this kind of like outlier that they don't even check in with themselves so it's like if you're ready to just hook up with one person then you can just tell them that and better to say it sooner rather than later and to know what the response is going to be because if somebody is not ready for monogamy it's good to know that it will save so you a lot you can, of time. Yeah. And and it's and it's scary, you know, to to say what you want. The the rejection can be more immediate when you're authentic. It's it's kind of instant and it's scary. And it's scary to admit to someone what you want, but then right, you it will save you a lot of time. So a friend re recently reached out, and I think this is what you were getting at, just kind of more authentic <laughs> strategies, because it's, it's not always so easy as just like, oh, communicate your needs. Like, there's a, there's a lot more to it. So he was like, oh, I went on a date with this awesome woman, and I'm so afraid I'm going to screw it up. Like, how do I not mess it up? So again, you know, love is magical. <laughs> the feelings are intense. We wouldn't want to fully manipulate someone into falling in love with us because, you know, then we would be with a robot. But at the same time, I understand that dating is scary. So there are ways we can actually, you know, hold our own hand through the process and be nice to ourselves and look out for ourselves. So I have this approach that I kind of call mindful dating. And that involves telling yourself sort of this one calming statement and then following it with these four questions. So let's say after a date or two, 
you feel like, wow, this is like the perfect person. What you can say is, okay, overall, I like what I've seen so far. And just kind of acknowledge, like, I don't know everything yet, but I like what I've seen so far. And that already just kind of slows down the process. And then the first question is, well, what did I like? So just kind of get back in touch with, you know, I am the one who is seeing if this person is right for me. It's fun to have somebody on a pedestal, but this is kind of a way to slow it down. What did I like? What did I not like? Maybe there's some things I didn't like. What's something I want to follow up on? Like for instance, oh, somebody was, you know, mentioning this very special friend they have. And then I'm wondering like, is he in love with his friend? And then maybe I want to look into that later. What do I want to follow up on? And then really just, do I want to see this person again? Because people, you know, patients will say like, I don't know if I see this long term. And it's like, well, you don't have to know that. Do you want to see them again or not? And if you know the answer to that, then you know the answer to a lot. So overall, I've liked what I've seen so far. What did I like? What did I not like? What's something I want to follow up on? And do I want to see this person again? Those are great. Those are really great. It's kind of simple, but yeah, I, it really something about helps like people. They're very regulating. Simple, yeah. but I think so many people actually don't ask themselves that question. Yeah. Especially when they're anxious and are more preoccupied about the other person and whether or not they like right. them or right. not. Right. It's really easy to just put somebody, you know, the person's on their pedestal and it's like, how can I be good enough? Right. And it's, it's like, let's slow this down. So I'll tell people to sort of like, you know, imagine you are... A researcher, and this is kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy has a spirit there too. You know, imagine you're a researcher, and you're again you're collecting a lot of data. Each date you're collecting data, and then comes time to you know sort of analyze the data, and then you can kind of start hypothesis testing. And maybe the hypothesis is you know this person is amazing, and it's like okay, well. Can this person give me what I need? And this is what I'm going to look into. So sort of each date I'm going to be, you know, testing out, can this person still give me what I need? And I'm collecting data. And it's like, you know, you can only collect so much so fast. And again, this is this idea that imagination and idealization really fuel infatuation. <laughs> so the more you can kind of slow down and try to look at what's in front of you, and what you need and communicate it, then that can really help, I think, calm people down. I love this topic and I think it's so relevant and I think people don't talk about it enough, but people are tortured by it. Like I, I hear so many people that struggle with, am I, should I play the game? I don't like the game. How can I, how can I make sure that I'm, I'm not, um, not losing someone by not playing the game? I mean, it's, it's so confusing. And so I think this is really helpful in being able to kind of understand where it comes from, even knowing what the short-term gains can be, but also like really what you want and, and thinking and considering about how to get that in a way that feels right. And helping to feel, and helping people feel to feel like they're okay just the way they are. There's this tendency for people's self-esteem to kind of go in the gutter in dating, especially. Right, when, helping people feel like they're enough. They're enough. That is yeah. that it is okay to want a relationship. That as you are, doesn't matter the situation. You can get a relationship if you want to. Mm. You should Probably. write a book, Kirby. 
<laughs> this is a great topic. Yeah, speaking Thank of, you. what what's next for you? Oh, uh, you, you know, I I've been in private practice now and I really miss talking about this stuff and writing about this stuff. So I had so much fun preparing for this interview and kind of culminating all my notes. And it's, well, like, since I've been in private practice, now what do I think about everything? So I saw all my notes together and I'm like, maybe I'll write a book. I, I, would, <laughs> I would also love to do groups. I miss doing groups um, with single people and almost like a dating workshop where I can talk more about the research in a more educational format. That's something I would really love to do too. And I think I'll start doing that. Anything to help people reduce their anxiety around this issue because people feel so alone with it. So I think those, those sound like I great think, strategies. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps to just talk about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much thank for you. being here. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.